0: Ditch the fairy tale, princess. It's time to step outside the status quo and blaze your own trail. The path littered with setbacks, successes, and newfound passions. Why? Because when you break away from the script, you start to pursue a life by choice. One that is all yours. Live Unscripted and rewrite your life. Hey girl, I wanted to introduce you to our latest brand partners here at Unscripted, JFF, Journey to Financial Freedom. If you've ever felt like your finances are the thing that is holding you back from truly reaching your potential, then let me introduce you to these guys. They help online coaches, consultants, and the likes of us organize and streamline your entire financial world. By doing so, they give you the clarity and empowerment you crave to confidently scale your empire. Not only do they help you shoot for that dream life, but they've got this unique blend of tactical and emotional financial strategies. They dive deep addressing money at an emotional level because they know it's those underlying beliefs and behaviors that can keep us stuck. They're passionate about transforming your relationship with money by aligning your deep-seated beliefs with those big dreamy goals. So with JFF, you're not just achieving financial mastery, you're reshaping your entire mindset for success and empowerment. They have a vision beyond the numbers. They believe that with a solid grip on your finances, you can turn your business into a force of good, making a lasting mark on the causes close to your heart. Imagine not only achieving your financial goals, but also creating waves of positive change in your community and beyond. So, how are you vibing with your finances lately? Let's level it up together and make an impact. Jump in with JFF and bring those dreams to life. If you want to hear a little bit more, tune into episode 234 with the girl, the hype girl, Steph, who we dropped in and shared a little bit about my backstory and my finance. Trauma and all the things in between, and why I am jumping in and becoming a part of the JFF family, and you can too. Now let's jump into today's episode. I'm so excited! How rad! So, well, let's just just jump into it. We'll share all of the cool things that you do and you know, and that you've you know put out into the world because it's things that we all need. So, Sarah, I'm excited to have you on today's show, and welcome. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Yes. So we just found out we're neighbors. Yeah, like Uh, literally like a block away from each other. This is the power of podcasting. And I've been on this kick recently sharing the power of podcasting, whether you have one or getting on as a guest to share your expertise, whatever that looks like. And it's so funny because usually I'm with people that I would never otherwise meet. And here you are like across the country in New York. And we just discovered that we literally live in the same neighborhood in San Diego.
1: It's so hilarious. (laughs) I don't. Wow.
0: How did you? How did you find me? So we have a podcast team that vets like interesting, amazing people that have some sort of like rad value to bring to the show that would be good for my listenership. And so we found you, and now we well, have all did the you. Did you know? <laughs> yeah. So funny. Well, it's very nice to meet you and be here. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Can you tell the listeners, which are predominantly women, working moms, early stage entrepreneurs, successful women in entrepreneurship? kind of who you are and what it is that you really now do. Right. Well, I'm a professor at UC Irvine, even though I live in San Diego,
1: and I run a sleep lab there. And the work that we do is really aimed at, right now, we actually have a big study trying to understand women across their menstrual cycle slash lifetime, you know, during the reproductive age and then during menopause and older age, how sleep impacts women's health and their cognition and their emotions. And that's sort of what I do in terms of the research, but then I also write books. And one of the books that just came out last year is called the power of the downstate and it's all about how we are rhythmic animals and actually accessing that and understanding how you have these rhythms where you have these optimal times for being active and optimal times for restoration and restoring all your energy that you need to be active puts you in a better position in terms of your health and
0: metabolism and cognition and all sorts of different um, parts of your life. Mm, That's so good. So, I mean, I'm someone who struggles with, and this is so fun. I love when things just naturally work out. I had a woman on, I've had a couple women on actually, who have really given a lot of context to what that cycle, sinking cycle, paying attention, all of it even looks like. Because nowhere in school were we taught that throughout the month, we're four or five different humans in the same body as a woman. We don't get told anything other than like what happens to us and how to handle it, but not how to process, you know, how we show up. How much effort do we put into work when it's that time of the month or that week before? Like there's so much to it that I feel it's such an unfair situation that we're uneducated to the level we are around how to take care of ourselves properly and the sleep factor to me I think I'm one of many people who just deal with not being a good sleeper we just chop it up to like maybe I drink too much coffee throughout the day it is what it is oh well you know I I wake up every other hour like that's just normal for me and to know that there's people out there doing research on how we can feel better have better lives like not not struggle with some of this stuff like I'm so curious to learn you know a lot of what you teach and what you've what you've discovered. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think that what you're saying is really um, it's it's really unfortunate. And it's really true. Uh-huh. And the thing that I find is that I feel like we've we've been educated to assume that we are kind of a mess because of our rhythms, you know, and that there's something wrong with us because of these rhythms, and that you know, menopause is more you know given to us as like a disease model. Like there's something that is awful that happens to us in our life, or or that menses, you know, our menstrual cycle. That somehow when, when we're bleeding, there's something awful happening to us. And I think that's the part that really got me interested in trying to understand it because it, it just seems like how could something that happens to every woman who has a uterus um, it, on the planet, how can that be a disease? Right? There's got to there's got to be a better way of thinking about this and then and then the other part is that historically this idea that because we have menstrual cycles and because we have you know these these ups and downs in our sex hormones that we must not be able to handle many things out there in the world like politics or leadership or you know big decision making and and that's really been historically i think the story about women is that you know, they're too hysterical or they're too emotional or they're, you know, they, they can't think right when they have their periods. And, and that's, I think, the thing that motivates me really to be exploring these questions like, all right, well, why don't we actually collect data <laughs> and really look at it and see, is, is there any proof, um, is there any evidence at all to these kind of um, assumptions that people have been making historically about women?
0: Well, and is there? Is there evidence? Is there anything? I mean, that you found that not to use in our defense, but to help us understand or explain that? Because I I hear like what you're saying and with the politics, and there's always almost like an underlying tone of it's felt like a joke now that people can just use those as excuses as to why a woman is not running the country yet, or why women are not in powerful positions because, oh, she's going through menopause, or oh, she's all it's that time of the month, like, know we can we can't have emotions or feelings or passion about something without it having some back context of like oh it must be that time of the month like it's become so commonplace to say shit like that
1: yeah yeah and, and and so this is the part that I guess is really that I just keep like I just keep wondering like you know I just keep trying to go back to the data and be like is this really what we're showing but what we find is we don't really see a lot of change across a menstrual cycle. So we look at sleep, we look at cognitive performance. We look at emotional regulation. We're looking at, you know, mood and how people feel across the menstrual cycle. And, 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 and granted we're looking at probably like 90 to 92% of the population, cause we're specifically not looking at people with severe menstrual um, dysphoria or any kind of you know real very difficult problems with their menstrual cycle which is basically in america that's about 90 percent of the population that we're looking at so we are looking at the majority of women um, in of course we have a small sample but we are using you know specific criteria to say not the not people with suffering from really strong menstrual cycle issues that affect their mood or their health but people who are in like 90% of the population, let's say. And for those women, we are not seeing any changes in our sleep. We're not seeing any really significant changes in mood. And we are looking at cognitive performance now and across several different types of cognitive tasks. We really are not seeing a lot of variety. The kind of variance that you would have assumed is there given the idea of like, oh, she can't be a president because she's on the rag, right? Like, you know, that she doesn't have self-control or that she's not going to, you know, she's going to be too emotional at everything you said. We just are not seeing evidence of that. The only thing that we have found so far is that during the menses time, so like three days before your period and then your period, if you have, so like, you know, we, we've looked at like mood across the menstrual cycle, and we don't see any changes in mood, right? Which is really surprising. But if you've had bad sleep during that menstrual time, then you are more likely to have bad mood. But if you have good sleep throughout your whole menstrual cycle, the mood doesn't vary that much. It doesn't vary significantly. So sleep is a protective factor. And, you know, and and that's important to know, right? Because then that means okay, well, within that period of our periods, we are more vulnerable to having bad sleep. And that can have an impact on, we're not more vulnerable to having bad sleep. Sorry, that was misspoken. We are more vulnerable to the effects of bad sleep. So if we're not sleeping well, which we may not do, you know, because for whatever reason, we may not sleep very well on a particular night. And if it happens to land on a time where we have our period, then we're going to have our moods get down, right? That, that's going to affect our mood. But good sleep is protective. So if you have, you know, good mood during your, sorry, if you have good sleep during your period, you're not going to see bad swings in mood. And then specifically also, interestingly, if you have bad sleep with outside of your period, it's not going to affect your mood. So it's really, there's a vulnerable period or period around our periods for bad sleep. And that has an effect on our mood. But there isn't just this overall thing of we just have bad moods during our period. That's just
0: we see no evidence of that. That's so interesting. And it's kind of nice to know. And I think if we take out the commonality of it being that time of the month and really recognize what else could be causing this quote unquote bad mood, what else could be causing these cravings. A lot of times it's easy just to blame things on the fact that, oh, it's my period. That's why I want to eat chocolate right now. Or, oh, it's my period. That's why I snapped at my husband. It's a great fallout excuse that we've learned to use. It's an acceptable one. It's one that like, I find even with my partner, he notices different mood swings with me when it comes to that. And it's interesting because I would agree sometimes, but then I would also look at the other factors. What did we do this week? Had we drank too much alcohol? Do we stay up too late? or were there things that we didn't discuss that we should have? Is that why I was in a bad mood? Maybe I was in a bad mood for that reason. you know, and it's it's the society has allowed for us to, you know, like I said, use these things as excuses whereas using that term that sleep is protective, it, it's so true because sometimes we just need a nap. Yeah. Sometimes we just need an extra hour of sleep to be able to better manage our day or handle our kids if they're, you know, being a w- little wild thing. So I just because I think that that expectation effect is really
1: strong. You know, like if you have the expectation that here comes my period, I'm going to be in hell. There's a lot of truth to the idea that we are our, our minds do can do for, to some extent, advise our bodies on what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so And and this is what I found very, very interesting is when I've been trying to understand, well, then what's PMS, right? Premenstrual syndrome. It's a a new concept as of, say, like the 80s, really, is when premenstrual syndrome really became a kind of popular concept. And when I started looking into amounts of premenstrual syndrome across different cultures, um, I was really shocked to find that there's a very wide range of a prevalence of PMS. So in America, P- severe PMS affects like moderate to severe PMS affects somewhere between three to eight percent of women. And this is people who are really expressing like around five or, you know, symptoms that are particularly bad, right? That they're, you know, bloating or really bad cravings or a lot of pain or bad mood and all, you know, these kinds of things. When I look at other cultures, And I'm not talking about individual studies. I'm talking about these meta-analyses that take all the studies in India that have ever been done on PMS and they try to then say, like, what's the general trend of all these studies? You see much higher rates of PMS in India. You see, like, uh, in Iran, there was a study, a meta-analysis that showed that 70% of women show severe, moderate to severe PMS. That's compared to... America which is 3 to 8%. So that's really really interesting, right? Because there's something there that is not biological, right? There's a, there's an impact of culture and which is probably some sort of level of expectation, but also maybe some level of women's rights or, you know, you know, where where do you stand in terms of your own civil rights, right? So there's a lot of interesting stuff that we just don't understand about how culture impacts
0: our own expectation of how our periods are going to affect us. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine because you're right. When you layer on the effects of stress and environment and all the other things, access to um, healthy, nutritious supplements and and food, that plays a role in, in the symptoms our body show when we're going through different phases, right? So You know, I learned early on that calcium is a natural pain reliever. And so I take calcium regularly to prevent any pain during that time. And it helps. I don't generally have cramps unless I have too much caffeine, which depletes your calcium. Or if I have too much alcohol, which also dehydrates you, which causes cramping anywhere in the body, not just in your uterus. So I think when you educate yourself on the things that can be preventative, sleep being one of them, also a healthy diet and Environment. We don't, I think, give enough credit to what's currently causing outside stressors because your body is the first place you're going to feel and see, you know, the effects of anything that's not healthy or not working for you. But so many people want to ignore it or label it PMS and go take an over the counter, you know, pill titled, you know, MIDAL or whatever that shit used to be that they would give us. And there are so many other solutions. You know, maybe you switch to fresh fruits and vegetables that week to prevent that or to fuel your body with the things that it needs. Again, these aren't educational classes that are provided with, you know, the youth when you start your period at sometimes eleven to twelve years old. You don't understand what's going on. You know, that's even a hard time to have nutrition conversations. You want what you want, you want what everybody else is having. And we all just want to fit in at some level, I feel like. So If everyone else has PMS symptoms, you're going to have PMS symptoms. You know what I mean? It's like this ripple effect, whether and I think in America, you probably three to eight percent sound. It's really low to me. I would assume it would have been much higher because we love to complain about stuff. We love Mm -hmm. to have like a reason for something. It's like that's why WebMD and like why the Internet's so popular. People want an explanation of like what's happening to me. Why is this you know, why is this what it is? And then even with that explanation, it's like, okay, now I know. Not, okay, now I'm going to do something about it. Just like, okay, now I know it's called PMS. I expect it every week. Like you said, that mindset of, oh, this is just what happens to me versus can I work a little bit less the week before my period so that I can sleep in, you know, maybe not go so hard at the gym, get more sleep at night, cut out the alcohol, take the vitamins, do all the things to support myself through that time. Absolutely. I I mean, everything you're saying, I
1: totally agree with. And, and, you know, and, and, the thing about nutrition, right, is that there's a, I'm blanking on the woman's name, but there's a woman right now who's talking a lot about intermittent fasting and her book, I think it's called fast like a girl. And, um, it's all about how, you know, intermittent fasting is fine. If you're within, if you're really considering the cycles of your menstrual cycle, right? So, so so there's phases of menstrual cycle where fasting actually may really not be the right choice because, you know, you're in a state of trying to conserve your energy and, you know, that's the, a, the sort of the menstrual phase down state, right? And then when you're in your high hormone areas, as a time when you can do a really, you know, do good calorie restriction and do the particularly the intermittent fasting way of doing calorie restriction. But we don't think about those things as women. We just like, because a lot of the data that's collected and the models that we're looking at are usually models of males and how it worked in the male rodents. And then how it worked in the male subjects right in the human subjects right so there's not the data collected in specifically looking it and this is because for many reasons one of them is is just that it's very very hard to do the right way of doing the research because if you really want to look at women through their menstrual cycle you have to do very big intensive studies within individual women you can't just take a woman and say, well, you're in your menstrual cycle, you're in your menses, I'm going to use you, then you're in your mid-luteal period, I'm going to put a group of mid-luteal women over here, and, you know, and then, you know, follicular period, and then, you know, the late luteal, and have all these four different groups, it doesn't work as well, because you have so much between group variance, due to all these different individuals in these groups, that you really are going to miss the subtleties of what's actually happening within an individual. So the only way to really do it is to track one woman across her menstrual cycle in very detail-oriented way. And that research, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing in my lab, but it's very hard to do and it takes years and it's only now just starting. And I think that it's starting because like I'm a woman and I'm a scientist, so I'm going to do that research, but I'm a new breed,
0: you know, of people who are doing that kind of research. Right. Wow. Okay. I want to talk about the books that you have out that people can get access to and and find some maybe relief or takeaways or just education so that they can support themselves better. You have a great book called Take a Nap. And I'm like so excited about that one because I've never been someone who was a nap taker. There's no time for that. The only time I took naps was really when I had my son and my body made me take naps at various stages. And I had some great, you know, motherly advice from other new moms sharing, like, sleep when they sleep. The laundry can wait. That should be a book. And that really helped me get through those, you know, uncertain seasons when I was navigating early stage motherhood and all the changes my body was going through. Like, the naps actually saved me. I think they saved my sanity. And a nap was far more productive than, you know, trying to go to the gym or do anything else. So can you talk to us a little bit about, like, what's in that book or what people can expect? yeah. So actually, I, I started doing all my
1: graduate work by by kind of rediscovering the nap in science. The you know the nap had been sort of relegated to the idea of the siesta, where you know countries that are in super hot regions close their businesses for like four hours, and they have these long lunches, and then they have wine, and then they all fall asleep. And then you know it, it, it's just it's that that's not really the modern day nap. And I think that I wanted to study, well, why does a nap work so well? Like when you're saying, you know, like you woke up and you're like, man, I feel great. I can actually deal with life. Like that's not the siesta. That's, this is like the modern day nap. And so for my graduate work, I I did a whole bunch of research, just looking at midday naps, half hour, hour to an hour and a half all the different sleep stages that you can get during the nap, and then what are the cognitive benefits, emotional benefits that benefit, like creativity and thinking that come from different types of naps? What kind of sleep do you need to, you know, like what's your target goal for your cognition? Is it more creativity? Is it better perception? Is it better motor learning or is it recovery from exercise? So how do you create the perfect nap to sort of satisfy each goal?
0: That was that book. How <laughs> specific? Uh, I love that. You know, it's funny yeah. because growing up, my grandfather would take a 20 minute nap every single day and he would have my grandmother come wake him up and never more than he was like, sometimes he'd fall asleep, sometimes he wouldn't. But he was like, he had learned in his body, he was in the military. So I'm not sure if that was like a trained thing. But even well into his 70s and 80s, he would take his 20 minute nap and he lived to be like 94 years old. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was wild. And and my boyfriend currently now, like if he eats, he he can take a nap. Like food, just it's like this off switch of like the siesta. And yeah. it's so interesting because for me, like if I start to feel tired, my go-to is to just grab a cup of coffee or to push push through or I'm too worried that the nap's going to make me not sleep better later. And it's usually not the case. So, I mean, I know when you just close your eyes when you're feeling like that, just to be able to get 10 minutes even, man, it does make all the difference. So are there specific ways we can train ourselves to learn how to nap well for different things? Yeah. So... I
1: mean, the, the thing about that, so that was my, that was the first book. And, and after that book came out, I did start to do research into people like you who say, well, I don't really want to nap and I don't really like to nap. And what I realized is like, well, half the population are nappers and half are not. And I haven't, and I and I would love to actually just take the time this year to write the follow-up book, which is like, well, maybe you don't need to nap, <laughs> which is really that, that not everybody necessarily benefits from a nap. And, and I feel always a little bad about when people really hate to nap, but they feel like, Oh my God, but you're saying all these great benefits. I really want to try it. But every time I try it, I feel like, like crap. But like it may not be that the nap is for you and there's other things that you can do. And then we could talk about my second book, which is kind of about like everything else that you can be doing instead of the nap. But, but the idea is that, you know, one of the things that, 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 is important to think about when you're thinking about trying to nap is what are you doing that's blocking the nap? Like obviously caffeine is a big one, right? So if you want to be napping, you know, say at like 1.30, it's probably not a good idea for you to have any kind of espresso with lunch, right? Or, you know, if you don't block off a time to nap, it just won't happen because you're always going to put something in front of your, you know, the nap schedule, And we are also really strong creatures of habit. We have very strong circadian rhythms, which means that if you try to nap just any old random time, your body won't get used to it and it it won't learn that this is your nap time. But if you really make a concerted effort to like find the same time, you know, whenever you're going to do it, if it's three days a week or four days a week, whenever it's going to be, but the same time, and also because we're so into sort of rhythms and, you know, habits having some sort of a habitual place that you nap or some place that you can kind of tell your body like here's I'm sending you the signals that are telling you like I'm going to start napping now that's also really important right like you want to be safe and you want to be in you know kind of with habits that that give you the signals to to be napping and you want to keep it at a consistent time and then also you don't want to be worried like your grandfather the fact that he had his wife to wake him up. Like you don't want to be worried you're going to miss something. So you also want to make sure that like you get, you know, the alarm going or whatever it is that's going to make sure that like you get up for the meeting that you have, so that you're, you know, that so you know that this is the cons- this is the time that I've reserved for my nap, and then I'm also going to be get able to get up and be refreshed and however long you need as well. You know, some people wake up and they're like ready to go, right? And that's yeah. what, like the real professional nappers. And then other people need a little bit of time, right? So then what do you need? Like, do you need to put water on your face or do you need to just
0: walk around the block for a second or do some jumping jacks or whatever it is? Yeah, I love that. No, and it's OK. So talk to us for those of us who aren't maybe in love with napping or don't have the accessibility to take naps. Say you work somewhere and that's just absolutely not going to happen. What is inside the hidden power of the downstate? Is that more tools and things that we can use if we can't get a nap going or if we like, what does that look like? yeah so actually the
1: old title was hidden power now it's just the power of the downstate but that's if people want to look for it, just power of the downstate and it's so what that book is really talking about is the fact that we have optimal times for for when we could be exercising when we should be eating when we should be using our brains for you know intensive intellectual processing and when we need to actually take breaks and then and you know, what times would be the optimal times for doing different types of things. And then also what times would be the optimal times for, you know, the, the very deep importance of restorative time. Because if you think about yourself as like a, I mean, you know, like a gas tank is that all of the, when we're in our restorative time, we're filling up the gas tank. And when we are out there in what I call the upstate, right? Which is the, that sort of optimal time for energy, expenditure, we are using up all of our gas and we need to then make a concerted effort to spend time doing downstate activities. And the downstate is where all of the energy gets replenished. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do if you're not a napper, because a nap nap is obviously like a really great mini downstate in the middle of the day. But just, you know, t- taking a break away from the computer, going out and being in nature, exercising eating really healthy foods, but also having intimate experiences like you know having a really good conversation with a friend, anything that basically, all of the things that we can do that increases our parasympathetic activity. So we have this, you know this autonomic nervous system and it's basically in charge of our stress responses. Um, but our stress responses are and, and those are very, really, really important to have. When we are working, when we are out there in the world in our upstate, being you know full of energy because we can mobilize energy really really quickly, but it's very costly to our energy resources. It, it drains our batteries really intensely. So what we need to do is increase. So you know the first one is the the stress response is called the sympathetic nervous system, and then the The system that calms you down is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And in my book, I call it Rev and Restore, because you get revved up by one and you get restored by the other. So when we're talking about how to calm ourselves down from all of the revving, we'd have to think about how we are increasing our restore system. And there's a whole bunch of things that you can be doing during the day that just takes breaks and sets you up to have periods where you're in, enhancing your parasympathetic system or your restorative system one of them like you know a ten t- spending 10 minutes doing deep breathing is actually one of the best ways it's very very simple and it's a direct route to
0: increasing parasympathetic activity i love that you just touched on that cuz i was actually going to ask your opinion on breathwork and the different forms of breathwork that exist because this was One of the first conversations where I learned about the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system was through my breathwork instructors, who one is a naturopathic doctor. So he broke down the science behind breathing and how, you know, you can regulate your nervous system and do all these things through that and and through the power of experiencing it and seeing other people being able to release and restore and like uh, get back to like a grounded place through deep breathing, whether it was like a traditional three-part breath or, even if it was just a couple of deep breaths. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things that it's, it's the science behind it is supporting just that. So what is your, I know you just touched on it a little bit with a few deep breaths or taking time to do that. Do you have any insight on breath work or what that looks like for people?
1: Yeah. So the secret of the breath work that I just think is so great to kind of just understand the biology of why it works is that so we have these different rhythms, as I've talked about, and you have your, your heart rate is, has a rhythm, its own rhythm where it's like, you know, it's, it's, it has a fast, fast, fast beating, and then slow, slow, slow beating, fast, fast, fast beating, and slow, slow, slow beating. And our breathing also has a rhythm where we have an inhale and an exhale and an inhale and an exhale. And usually, and, and you can imagine that the, that there's a, there's a reason why we have this fast, 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 slow, slow, slow to our, to our heart rate. And that's because when we are, when our heart is beating really fast, it's trying to gobble up all of the oxygen in our lungs during the time in which we have a lot of oxygen in our lungs during the inhale. Right. And so when you have slow, deep breathing, you have a lot of you inhale a deep breath (laughs) into your lungs and your heart rate is at this optimal period where it's, um, quickly, quickly, quickly eating up all the oxygen. And by the time the you're ready to exhale, your heart rate can then slow down because there's no more oxygen to be had from your lungs and you're on the exhale, right? So that's a super efficient system when the rhythm of your heart rate and the rhythm of your breathing rate is uh, optimized to be in line with each and synchronized. The truth is, is that most of the time those two systems are totally out of whack with each other because we breathe very quickly. We breathe like about 10 to 15 times a minute and our, and our, and our heart rate is much slower. Our, our, the rhythm of our heart rate is much slower. So that means that our, the amount of oxygen that we're getting into our system is actually much less efficient than if we would slow our breathing down. When you start to slow your breathing down to like six breaths, six, five or six breaths a minute is when you're getting into this really nice optimized state where you're synchronizing your heart rate and your breathing so that when you have the slow inhale you're able to gobble up all the oxygen and then once the oxygen is empty then your your heart rate can slow down and, and conserve its energy so that's why when you do slow deep breathing you see this really big increase in relaxation responses because your the impact of that slow, deep breathing is that you have a big increase in your parasympathetic system. So, good. so just engaging in any kind of breathing exercise like yoga or, you know, just doing a a short meditation of like 10 to 12 minutes a day actually shows increases
0: in parasympathetic activity. Amazing. So if you have the ability to nap, add that in with some sort of deep, slow breathing or meditation. And I feel like it's going to help you regulate your nervous system to a place where you're going to feel more calm no matter what time of the month it is. And I love all the insight that you you shared. And I hope if anyone listening has gone through different seasons of struggle with your cycle that you find tools or people that can help you understand things a little bit at a deeper level so that you know that you're not just stuck with the cards you're dealt or if you have been struggling, if you are part of that 8% or 3 to 8% of people who do struggle there are things that you can do and ways that you can kind of reverse what you've been dealing with all these years, I believe. And I know you can find Sarah on her website. I know there's books and resources out there. I'm sure you're good if people reach out to you on social just to say hi and maybe ask any questions or connect a little bit deeper on this topic. But I think having these conversations on the show is so important to me because we all struggle with things at a certain level. And it's when we don't have the conversations about them that they stay this weird taboo thing that we have just chopped up as an excuse or how it is. And I hope that, you know, you find some clarity in conversations like this and get curious about ways that you can take better care of yourself, because that is one of the biggest pillars for me is, is knowing what's going on with my body so that I can then do something about it, whether it's, you know, this way or that way or good or bad. When we educate ourselves, it allows for us to take action and then in turn, maybe help other people who might be struggling with the same thing by having these conversations that aren't as glamorous as some other things that we get to talk about on this show. So thank you so much for your insight and your time. And I can't wait to grab coffee with you when you're back in town since we're neighbors. Know, That's so awesome. crazy. <laughs> Is there a better place for people to find you? Is Do you have a favorite spot? I've been on Twitter for a couple of years, but I just,
1: I'm less and less interested in Twitter these days just because of the environment on it is just weird but I am on Twitter Sarah underscore mednik and then my website is saramednick.com and I think that there's a you know e- email ability
0: there so people can contact me that way as well fabulous but you guys go grab the books everything will be listed in the show notes Sarah thank you so much for your insight and the work that you do I know it's going to help so many people and has already helped probably tens of thousands of people just understand themselves better and I think that's really at the end of the day what we're all trying to do is understand how to live this life just one be percent better easier. every day exactly yeah. all right so you guys much. if you if you love this episode please let us know leaving a rating and review means the world we love a little validation here at unscripted the podcast to know what it is you love and what you want to hear more of so we'll see you guys on the next episode thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast episode i hope you enjoyed it this is your friendly reminder that if a podcast is on your heart to create we got you boo We created Media Unscripted to take the guesswork out of starting, launching, and growing your podcast. I knew I had to create something that I wish existed three years ago when I started the show, which, by the way, had a different name. What does that mean for you? Simply put, you don't have to have it all figured out before you start. We help take the guesswork out of launching your show and creating meaningful content that adds value. A podcast can be your main source of content that not only helps you build an audience, but connects you deeper to your community. Go to mediaunscripted.com to learn more. Which one of your girls needs to hear this one? Send this to someone who could use a smile, some encouragement, and a little love from this edgy podcast host. Much thanks and all the love.